0: We're the this is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. At 38 years old, Paralympic biathlete and sit skier Dan Nosson is coming off a 6 medal performance in Pyeongchang. Continuing on the academic front, Nelson graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and holds a master's in public administration to go along with his master's in theological studies. He was also a platoon commander in the Navy SEALs when he was injured in Afghanistan in 2009. He's also the recipient of both a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star with Valor. We begin the interview with Nelson answering how he became a para-athlete.
1: Sure, I'll I'll try to tackle that. Um, I was uh, was serving in the the military in the U.S. Navy at the time of my injury, which occurred in 2009, and and that injury uh, resulted in the amputation of both of my legs above the knees. And and so I found myself in in a hospital rehabilitation environment for up to about two years. And in that process was exposed to the Paralympic Organization, through recruitment that they were doing at the military hospital Walter Reed and um, pretty quickly uh, gravitated towards biathlon because of the, the shooting and the, and the skiing, the moving and shooting. I felt like this is a pretty good transition. It would kind of reclaim what I felt like I had lost with not being able to do my primary job in the military anymore as a, as a SEAL officer. And Furthermore, cross-country skiing enabled me to get, and I think this was the most important thing, to get back into the woods, to get into nature. This was something I really craved, and I, at the time, I felt like there's, there's actually not really any other viable way to get into trails. I loved trail running before my injury, so cross-country skiing really got me back into nature. I just needed it to be wintertime. And I was really hooked, really, really hooked on it. Uh, both, both sports, I love so much about both of them, and I love the fact that on the Paralympic team we can do both because there's just so there's obviously the common thread is cross-country skiing, but in their subtle ways, the more you you know, one gets into each sport, they're very different sports, and uh, that uh, that has been really a huge portion of my life for. Seven years now, since 2011. Uh, I, I trained in Colorado while still remaining on active duty for the Sochi Paralympic Winter Games uh, in 2015. I uh, exited from the military, retired, uh, found myself in graduate school in Boston. I was looking to do a one-year program at, at Harvard Kennedy School, which I did. Um, I found like that Boston was a really good environment, that it provided wonderful academic and intellectual stimulation, but I'm still at a gateway city to, to ski country and that I'm still able to train. And, um, I didn't really compete that year, but I, I convinced myself that it would be possible to still be a student and, and, and train given, given the current kind of situation that I was in. And, and I found, um, uh, the Harvard divinity school to be a, a very, very appealing program and, and applied there and got in. And so I did kind of three years and two master's degrees and the, uh, the the balance that I achieved was really was really great between the mind and the body. And, um, I found that the academics channeled my workouts and that the workouts were a nice distraction from the academics. And so, uh, that kind of brings me up to Korea where I, I really devoted the last semester of my three years to, to getting up to Craftsbury, Vermont and training. It's such a wonderful, wonderful venue up there. And, and the, the, uh, Every, from the from the owners to the the groomers to the people working in the kitchen and to everyone um, at the Nordic Center, they were so supportive. And their staff, uh, the GRP coaches, were working with me on biathlon, and it was just awesome to go up. There. and I would drive up on Thursdays and come back on Mondays. Um, in the the five weeks leading up to Korea, prior to that, I had done a a long winter camp in in Montana, and so went to Korea. And then came back and a couple was really focused at that point on graduating, and um, that's kind of where you, you have me now. I, I've just finished my uh, my three years of school, and I'm looking to continue as a Paralympic athlete, but um, find some other avenues to um, occupy myself as well.
0: Gotcha. And so, I mean, wow, um, you just gave a synopsis in about five minutes, and I know there's a ton of detail that. Um, I'm imagining you grew up in a family that was like, try not to draw a ton of attention to yourself and do your job and do it well. So, um, yeah. So I kind of actually, one thing that caught my eye, you know, kind of doing some background research is that you, um, you're from Topeka, Kansas. Correct. And you grew up on what sounds like a fifth generation family farm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was, it was amazing.
0: You know what was your athletic outlet back in say like middle school and high school? Obviously, I know it snows on occasion in the high plains, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily something that we think of as like biathlon and cross country ski country.
1: Well, yeah, I I absolutely was a, a soccer player. I loved playing soccer, but uh, to be honest, I wasn't really that great. I what I was good at though was the running part of it, and I just I was I had gravitated towards sports that's kind of like my parents were never pushing me in any direction but it was just kind of in kansas that's just kind of what you do you play team sports and when i knew my senior year of high school that i was going to the naval academy i thought i need to show up there just in tip-top shape and and that and you know involves push-ups and pull-ups but running as well and and i knew i was a good runner and i thought well, I'll just do the track team and i and i Ran the two mile and the one mile, and I was actually pretty good at it. And I think that could have been a—I don't exactly have the right body type to be an elite cross-country runner. But I was pretty good. I would have loved and been and decent at cross-country skiing. It just wasn't in the cards for my my youth. But in a way, I think it's, it worked out well because had I been a cross-country skier before and then lost my legs, I'm not sure that I would want to sit ski. I might be constantly comparing my current self to my former self. And I don't want to do that. I want to be doing new things. And and cross country skiing was new and it was exciting. uh, Something I'd never done. Um, I've, I've since also gotten into surfing and it's not something I had really done before. So I think there's something to be said for kind of reinventing the self after a major, a major injury or or a setback and not trying to reclaim the former self.
0: I've read something about, you, you know, worried you had talked about how, just like you had just explained, like why cross country and biathlon was appealing to you and that it's something new. Maybe, you know, if the listeners are not familiar with your accident, and I don't want to, if you can kind of describe, you know, what you experienced and how that brought you into, you know, the cross country biathlon scene. Um, I know you're a double amputee and I've read a little bit about what occurred, but I would rather hear from you.
1: Sure. Yes. I had been, uh, I I went through seal training for the Navy, uh, fresh out of the Naval Academy when I was uh, 22 years old. And I started that seal training is called BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash seal training. And, it's at its at its shortest it's about six to seven months if you don't have any sort of medical or performance setbacks and um, the entirety that's not the entirety of the initial training though that initial training is about 15 months if you again get through it in one shot and I was lucky to get through it and graduated in 2003 so I was a deployable seal from 2003 September to my injury in 2009 and as an officer, I, I did various jobs and worked my way along the, the uh, career pipeline to become a platoon leader. It's not something that you do right away, unlike the infantry where a brand, op- brand new officer takes charge of a platoon. And in the SEAL community, you, you do an assistant platoon commander tour that involves a two-year Kind of work up or well, a year and a half workup followed by a six month deployment, so it's a two year cycle and so i did I had done a, f- a couple deployments and then was finally a platoon leader, which was an amazing honor and responsibility to be in charge of a 20 man field platoon and went through the entire workup and we were slated to deploy to Afghanistan in uh, really really October of two thousand and nine but I had gone um, on like a more forward advanced deployment a few weeks early just to learn the lay of the land see what the uh, unit that we were going to be replacing was doing how they were planning and conducting operations so I was in advance of the majority of my platoon and on a particular night I went out with that unit that my platoon would be replacing and as a as a as a shadow essentially and uh that's when I I stepped on an IE at night on a uh, assault operation that we were conducting and it uh, was a pretty, pretty significant blast that uh, rendered me uh, very, uh, very much in shock. Uh, but no teammates were injured, fortunately. The guys really did a wonderful job of uh, um, reacting and assessing the situation, assessing not only the broader tactical situation, but also my medical um, condition. And that required me to be medevaced very quickly. But the problem was there were there's no way to do that. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere in southern Afghanistan. So helicopters were uh, summoned, and and that was all done very well. And we had to get me into a a suitable place to land the helicopters, and that was done. It took it took some time, and and this is just a, a situation of like racing against the clock. Um, I had many tourniquets applied to both of my limbs. Um, I was conscious at the time. I didn't know that I didn't have lifts but um, they might have been dangling uh, there in shreds. I'm not exactly sure. I couldn't see anything anymore. My uh, night vision goggles were gone, and um, I was really just mainly trying to stay awake and and uh, not be a too much of a liability vocally. So they did a wonderful job, and I have those guys really to thank first and foremost. And then second, the pilots who got there, and they were running low on fuel, and then. Um, there happened to be a flight surgeon on board and I don't know who that individual is, but I have that person to thank. And then got me back to Kandahar airfield and the surgeons took it from there. And and I was put in a medically induced coma for several days. I, my condition was grave, uh, but it, it did get better eventually. And uh, at one point doctors weren't sure if I would make it or not, but I did. And this was all just happening as I'm unconscious going through surgeries and debrismen and worked my way back to Bagram airfield and then launched to Germany. And, uh, finally was in Bethesda at the Naval hospital in Maryland. And at that point, th- and this is maybe eight days later, they lifted the coma and I woke up and I was in an ICU and my mother and sister were there. They had gone through a, an ordeal that I only heard about later, but, um, I, at that point went through, um, many, many more surgeries. And, um, it was, it was definitely challenging to say the least mentally. I, acquired a like, field training was tough in the sense that, um, physically it, it pushes you to the edge and therefore mentally, um, in many ways. And, and many people succumb and, and bow out or, or, or get injured or come up with excuses for whatever reason, they don't get through. But uh, this was different for me because uh, at this point, I don't have a choice to to quit. Or I mean, I'm in in the hospital. I have to go on, and, and, and I'm just dealing with a lot of pain. And it also seemed, I mean, it's especially it's it's tough for anybody to lose their legs and and above the knee. And uh, for me, I felt like it was particularly cruel because I just I really felt like I used my legs a lot, and I, I would take you know the the precious times before a deployment or after a deployment when you're when you're actually off and you can take some vacation i w- would go down to patagonia to hike a mountaineer or uh one particular time coming back from iraq i went up to yosemite to do a, a solo backpack trip and um i was always trail running i just felt like uh, one of my friends told me like gosh if anybody to lose the legs it was really unfortunate for you in particular because of just how how much I was always outdoors doing stuff. And I just felt like this is unfortunate, but I had a lot of optimism about what prosthetics could do. And uh, some of that was false optimism that I came later to find out once I got to the stage of physical therapy that the prosthetics for the knees are not quite as good as you might think and that they're they're pretty difficult to use in off-road situations and maybe hiking isn't going to be the thing that I do now, but um, it could be done but it may not be done at a high level of achievement or, and, and I'm, and I can't help but compare to the things I was doing before. So this, this all kind of is paving the way towards me getting into cross country skiing. I think, as you can see. Yeah. Yeah.
0: well, Yeah. So let me take a step back there. I'm, and I'm kind of curious where you're, I mean, you're right. A lot of people would fold many times during the steps that you sort of were exposed to as on, on your road to recovery. Someone says to me, Yeah, they went through SEAL training. You're like, gulp, you know, you feel puny. <laughs> you know, I am curious, uh, you know, what was it about you or what got you through? You know, the, the exactly. I mean, you're someone who like self describes themselves as lo- loving the outdoors and uh, specifically the kinesthetic piece of being outdoors you know you're not just like plop down on a bench checking out a view. you're like getting your heart rate up experiencing you know the ground under your feet so to speak um yeah what was that like like I, and what did they provide you i'm sure there was tons of counseling um if you can just talk a little bit about that process
1: yeah I, well i think thanks for the the comments and the the question i i uh, I, I really think that there were two aspects of to get through SEAL training, one is the the, the network that you have uh, of of your friends and, and peers that are going through it. And on one hand, you don't want to get too close to people who may end up quitting. But I was in a little bit of a different situation because I came from the Naval Academy, and um, we, we were very very well screened at that point. The, the the brand new ensign officers that were going through, and I lived with five other five other guys that were going through this exact same training. And there was just simply no way that I would quit and go back to that apartment and have to do like, it just, it's just not an option. And, and, and everybody's situation in SEAL training is different. Not everybody's in that kind of a situation, but it does lead me to believe that there is really something about your, your social and family and friend network that really can help you advance and get through tough times. And then the other thing is the kind of the mindset that it requires to get through something like hell week, which is a, one of the more notorious weeks in field training. It's just one week out of 26 weeks, but it, it tends to get the most amount of attention and the most amount of quitters. And, uh, the, the mindset there, I think that, uh, is necessary to get through the training is one that, uh, kind of focuses more on the short term, keeping the long term goal of getting through the week in mind but in the back of the mind because to think about when it starts on sunday to think about friday when it ends knowing that you're not even going to sleep once until wednesday that's that that can just break someone down mentally and uh, really and even the instructors gave us a lot of wisdom before they said you know you just need to focus on the current evolution what do you what is the immediate task at hand and, uh, for me, I had a series of goals, like in the middle of the night, I was just really trying to, my midterm goal was to get to when the sun came up because the sun coming up would just really rejuvenate you and, and you would feel more energy. Uh, but the short-term goal could be to get just through this evolution, not knowing how long it's going to take. So there's this, there's this, uh, kind of unfolding from the long-term into the midterm to the short-term into the, the actual, like immediate moment and that process focusing maybe just getting through now so that you can get to that next meal that kind of a mindset really can help as well get through adversity and this is this applies to racing too i think absolutely in long distance races you know you can't be thinking i've got to do a 20k ski race it's more about like okay this thing is it's four laps how am I going to apply in in your, in your thing? What am I going to, the longer goal is to to finish as fast as you can, but then the midterm goal is to to do an appropriately paced plan. The immediate is attacking this hill or this piece of terrain in in the appropriate technical way. And and what, you know, how am I feeling right now? Am I pushing it too hard? Do I need to push harder? So it it all kind of goes together.
0: It it sounds like you, for lack of a better word, it's sort of like, it's not a job fair, but it's like you're being exposed to options for amputees. It sounds like, you know, they were rec- essentially recruiting athletes. And all of a sudden you, and as you described, you were kind of seeking something new, something other than you were had been exposed to in the past. And you got involved with... The cross country and biathlon team, the para teams, and you ended up at a camp in Montana. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Good research.
0: Um,
1: well, we're the, I can only
0: imagine just talking to you now for like 22 minutes, but they must have been salivating. I mean, one is you just said, and like, all your training can be applied to the, like breaking down race strategy. You're clearly tough. Um, you know, what kind of sales pitch did they give you? It's like, hey, you know, that made you buy the, the biathlon cross country sales pitch rather than some other, uh, para sport.
1: Well, the, the recruiting coach, the coaches that were at the recruiting that I did in San Diego, they were, uh, they came more from the biathlon background and they were definitely selling me on the, the you know, it's, it's shooting with a heart rate, shooting under pressure. Uh, it, it, this sport has its roots in Scandinavia coming from, uh, I think, you know, military roots in, in those, uh, those countries, in Norway and Sweden and uh, it, it's uh, highly, highly um, busy in terms of travel. So you're going to, you're going to feel like you're kind of like in the military because you're going to be training as part of, even though you're an individual, you have a support network, which is very common to the military. You know, there's, there's, um, there's a coach, there's a um, training plan. There's a, there's wax technicians, there's physiologists, there's nutrition, all of these support nodes come together. You will be traveling quite a bit um, and you'll be training and you'll see progress. This is all kind of really resonating with me. Um, Although I I had said earlier that you may want to look at reinventing yourself. I do think we kind of fall back on the person that we were after after a major setback. And um, this just seemed like a pretty good transition for me coming from the uh, SEAL operational tempo.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in terms of obviously sliding on snow is, a, was I'm imagining like a completely new experience for you. You know, how tough is that to learn? You know, you're, you're trying to go downhill, you're trying to stay in the tracks, you're double pulling uphill. Is that something that came easier? Or was it like, oh my gosh, this is frustrating and I'm I just have to kind of persevere.
1: Yes, it's it's very tough to to go from, um, you know, really relying on the use of one's legs to now being in a sit ski. Um, for anybody to sit ski, I think the scariest thing in the beginning is the question: How am I actually going to stop? Like, I can't I can't tow in my skis or anything. Uh, okay, you can drag your poles, but that that only works so well. And uh, if if you start doing that when you're already at high speed on a downhill that can have really bad results because you <laughs> kind of force you to tumble or so it's uh it's pretty scary for, for one but then number two uh the amount of core and and upper body strength that's required to just get up the hill or to go and, and you know it's it's pretty significant i think you could take a an accomplished cross-country skier and they they'd sit ski pretty well but you can I mean, I thought, well, I've been, I've done a lot of swimming. I think I'll be okay. Um, I have good strength, but I didn't have the technique. It really was humbling. It really, but at the same time I realized it's just through seeing my teammates, Andy Sewell and Sean Halstead and how fast they were that I think this, this is a I just need to train. And then I need to move somewhere where there's going to be snow a decent amount of the year. And, and then uh, it's a matter of just uh, following the training plan and, I'll see progress. That's really nice to see. Uh, anytime you can see progress, it's it's really rewarding. And starting as slow and uncoordinated as I am, I will, I will see progress at this point. So it kind of, it's motivating. And, and more than anything, it, it was really neat to be outside in the woods and on snow and having that mobility, not just like doing snowmobiling, but moving under my own power and um, seeing wildlife. And, um, been, it's been, in, in one way, it was therapeutic even uh, for me to do this. But it's, and then, and then, the better one gets, it's you can still. I can just think back to that camp at, at Bozeman, Montana, in late 2010, and just uh, say to myself, "Wow, I can't believe how new I was." But that uh, it, it just required consistency, really, and consistency is so important in training.
0: Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'm looking at. I mean, you came out of Pyeongchang, uh, I think, with three medals. Is that right?
1: I had. Uh, I actually uh, entered six races: three biathlon races and three cross-country races, and I was able to get a medal in all three. So that consist. I'm saying all six. So three of each discipline, and that consistency uh, was uh, is what I'm most most proud of.
0: That's pretty insane. I mean, I. I uh, mm-hmm. um You know, you've obviously been through a lot, but you sound very, I mean, yeah, you've been through a lot. And is this something, are you, are you, rather than clearly there's like the day to day consistency and being methodical, but without the goal of like metals hanging out there, you know, and it's not low hanging fruit. I mean, that's like as high hanging fruit probably as you can imagine. Without that, how you know would you have been able to stay as driven?
1: Well, it's this uh, interesting mindset I've, I've been working on. I, I think that, one, I want to say, I think society equates success as getting medals. And I've lately been trying to rearrange the way that I think about it and uh, try to let me go of that kind of definition of success. And that the success us, in quotes, if you want to call it that it's just the process it's the training, and that, that is ultimately what it mattered about I, Some athletes may need the more quantifiable results to, to have endorsements and, and sponsorships and opportunities to monetize what they love to do, but um, I'm generously being taken care of by the VA and, and the uh, it's just a matter of loving this sport just for what it is and loving the training and loving going up to Craftsburg and doing intervals and doing biathlon combos. And I started to just think that was the most important thing. And that I had put too much pressure on myself in Sochi because I felt like as an active duty military person at that time that I needed to, you know, get a medal. But then, um, I did it. Uh, the Russians were on, fire and we just, it was a tough, very tough, um, field of competition. And, uh, I came back and I ended up in school and, um, this is kind of like the decision point where I'm either going to continue on down this trajectory that school is taking me, or I'm going to continue doing what I, what I know that I love and what I still have potential to do well in. And, um, I learned some things in school and one of them is just to kind of not focus too much on these, uh, on these these things that society deems as, as, representing success. And so I let go of those attachments and, um, focused on what I love and I love training. And then, it, and when I showed up in Pyeongchang, I just, I had kept telling myself that the only thing that really matters is just what I can actually do. How can, how far can I push myself? How fast can I go in a way that's smart Cross the line? Don't, I mean, in during the race, don't look at the jumbotron. Don't listen to the announcer. If, the, if, if his voice, his or her voice comes into my head, it'll pass out the other ear. It doesn't matter what they're saying. It doesn't matter. All that matters is just what I'm doing and how hard I'm pushing myself. And then I cross the line and don't look at the jumbotron. Just ask myself quickly, did, did I give it everything that I could have given? And was this, was this good? And um, one of the races I crashed, and I had to kind of gather myself mentally. And that's, more than any other moment is what I'm most proud of because it's not so much a matter of how you're doing mentally when things are going your way. It's more about how do you react when something, um, something that you don't plan for happens and that um, if I cross the line, it's like if I gave it my all, then that's all I can be happy about. And that's, that's kind of a cliche, but to really believe it, I think is very powerful as an athlete that it's just about what you can do. You know,
0: I'm curious, you know, when when you talk about those things, and, and I know you're a divinity student, and are, and have you completed that degree at this point?
1: I, I have, yes, Three, uh, two months ago. Okay,
0: yeah. so congratulations, um, and how long was that program? Thank you.
1: That was a two-year program. Okay. I did it full-time, so it was uh, four semesters.
0: I, you know, I'm curious what you learned in that program and maybe describe to people what a divinity program is. I, mean, I, had a, I had a friend who went through a divinity program, I don't know, 25 years ago. I was like, wait, is he becoming a priest or is he becoming a Catholic priest? Like I had no framework for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that is, and I'm curious, like what you've learned and been able to apply as an athlete in that program.
1: It was, uh, the Harvard Divinity School is a wonderful program for me. Uh, there's There's two different May, main programs within the school. One is a three-year program, and I did, it, which focuses more on ministry, but from a multi-religious um, outlook. Uh, I was in the two-year program, the Master of Theological Studies, and that's more of a academic study of religion. And there's different concentrations. You have what's really neat about it: you have students that are coming from Sri Lanka as Buddhist monks, or uh, they're students that are Hindu. Muslim, Jewish, Christian, uh, and other religions, atheists, uh, agnostic—you have people that are um, just uh, from all over the all over the world, really. And um, the the diversity of beliefs is pretty impressive. I concentrated in religion, ethics, and politics. I thought it made sense. I was coming from the Kennedy School of Government and wanted to take more classes back at the Kennedy School, and I did. But I took a couple. I took a class on Buddhism because I was kind of intrigued by it. I took a class on Hinduism and uh, I took a, uh, it's a class on um, philosophy of life as viewed in the East and the West. And the the program in general, I would say is very uh, intellectually rigorous. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of philosophy meets this sort of like applied religion. And it's um, really great. Buddha's Buddhism uh, resonated with the athlete in me. Because it's um, it's about you know the first noble truth in Buddhism is that everything is suffering and the reason that we suffer is because of ego and desires and then but that that can be broken through the through meditation and through proper living and all that but the uh, the athlete in us kind of seems like wow okay this is about, it's about suffering and you know how can you in, in maybe the ego has become too big. How, how do I like kind of reduce my ego? Because the ego is what, what, what's the metals and all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's not what's important. Let go of that stuff and like focus on doing what you love and focus on the natural world and being in the moment and, and all of that. And I'm not a Buddhist, but it was really, really interesting just to learn about another way of thinking and then apply it to what I do. I love the program at the Divinity School. It's a very multi-religious place and so you get a variety of perspectives it was wonderful
0: are you the type of person i mean we're all people right and so i am just making the general statement that like everyone sort of struggles with like highs and lows um do you i mean you obviously have a lot to be fortunate about one is you're you know for all practical purposes you're a healthy thriving human being right yep um yep but that could have turned out much differently. And do you, you know, we all, I'm just trying to think of like, you don't really know what you have until you've lost something. And we all in life, whether it's the death of someone close to you or you witness an accident, mm-hmm. um, you sort of have that wake up moment. And that wake up moment may last for like, if you're lucky a month and you don't take things for granted. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious is because to me, you know, and I listen to your, experience, you know, one is your schooling at the Naval Academy and Divinity School, and the other is the real world experience of, you know, being involved with a catastrophic incident in in warfare. You know, do you two have those moments where you take things for granted or are you kind of like, I don't know, like, I don't want to say superhuman, but because of what you've been through, it's like every day you're like, oh my gosh, I'm thankful. This is all good.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, um, I sometimes come down pretty hard on myself because I I can quickly remember, um, and go back to 2009 when I wasn't allowed to drink water due to the condition of my intestines and stomach. And so I was being hydrated intravenously and, uh, not allowed to eat either, just getting calories intravenously as well. Uh, so I, was under strict orders not to put anything down my throat and and just to kind of satiate my mouth I was allowed to have ice chips and at one point I OD'd on ice chips so to speak because I had a friend had stuck in a bucket and I this is I'm in the ICU and I shouldn't have done it but it like I was just craving water so much and I was just like at the at the minimum before I was craving food it was just to drink water I wanted water so bad and this is for several weeks I had a uh, ng tube up my nose down the back of my throat into my stomach trying to decompress my intestines and uh you know I, I have water in front of me right now and i just took a sip a few minutes ago i didn't even think about it it's just the the state of the human mind i think is just to kind of naturally take things for granted we we can try to remind ourselves not to do that but um it's just i think we're we're, we're human and it's just Natural, but we recognize that and recognizing that uh, everything is impermanent is important and that, that therefore we should appreciate the moment and be in the moment.
0: So what is your, um, it sounds like you want to continue with parasports. Um, what is, what does that look like for you? Like, what does that mean? Is that like the Olympic level or is that like you're going to dial it back a bit?
1: Oh, I'm very, very much, um, uh, looking forward to competing next next season and uh, training, taking it year by year, see how my body feels. Uh, I just turned 38. I think I have a few more years in the sport uh, and still being able to improve. And, and sometimes the improvement comes because of more of the wisdom aspects and just being more experienced in races. Uh, and then I am focusing more on taking care of my body in ways that i didn't before, really doing a good job of, getting massage, uh, going to see the chiropractor and taking care of my shoulders. And, um, I think, well, I hope that I've learned the importance of not overtraining because as a graduate student, I was forced to economize. And then I, and because of that, I, I did not overtrain and then I, I could see my results going up so when, and really it, they sh- my results shouldn't have been going up because I was burdened quite often with schoolwork, but because I was forced to rest, I, then, um, then saw what that meant. And so I need to not overtrain right now as I get older too. So very much, uh, I just asked myself, do, do, am I looking forward to going up to Craftsbury Vermont and doing intervals this winter? And the answer is yes. <laughs> am I looking forward to racing? Of course. But even, even the training and the, like this parts that aren't as glamorous cause you know, mm-hmm. no one sees it or that, that's actually what I think I like the most is the training uh, and then of course the competitions are fun too, but, um, I'm very much fired up about it and, and it didn't make sense to me to walk away from it. Um, premature. I'd rather walk away when I think about training and I get sort of, if I just have a bad feeling in my stomach about it, then that's my body telling me it's probably time. If I'm, and I am fired up about it then that's a signal that I should still be doing this. And and why walk away from something you love? prematurely
0: you know I, I i just love the interface you know when i think about your experience you know um navy seal divinity school kennedy school you know how do you envision pulling that all together in your professional life
1: wow yeah that's a, i've been grappling with that question for a while i right now yeah it's right well right now I've, i'm i'm uh, i'm very much wanting to be uh a member of the the ski team still and, and Competing, but uh, I feel like I do feel like a, there's a big hole in my life right now because of that. That was filled by school, and then all of a sudden, that just that just ended like two months ago. And um, i I love reading, but I know I was reading to the point of exhaustion for three years, just so much reading in school. But uh, you know, I want to continue reading and learning, but but I um, I, I want to fill. Kind of have a, a good blend of being an athlete, but in a, in a way that serves purpose. I I've recently applied for to be an enter for classroom champions, and, and just found out that I was approved for this upcoming academic year, which would be great. Because coming off of being a student, I feel like I had a lot, to, a lot of enthusiasm for this kind of athlete uh, student blend and or student athlete blend, and that this will be a great way to uh, create uh, short. Uh, internet-based instructional videos for the kids. And it's all done through the, the Classroom Champion nonprofit in a guided way, and I'm really excited about that. And then I've been, um, after Pyeongchang, approached by a sports agent who uh, wants to kind of develop and hone uh, a message in a speech format, and maybe this can be a way to, to talk to people and uh, deliver government message I a few years ago I have to say like I I kind of was reluctant to do the do media engagements or to even put myself out there because I felt like um as you said that the uh, the ethos of the military and specifically the community that I came from and the SEAL teams is to do your job do it well and be quiet and I say that and, and I'm talking to you for a podcast but I have since kind of thought like that if you don't ever say your story or tell your message, then it dies when I die. And that I do have lessons to pass on to others. And I'm not, not talking about specific operations or anything that I was doing specifically in the military. So that there's there's a balance between this. And so I'm trying to achieve that balance and and live so that I can do what I want to do. And hopefully, hopefully it helps some people along the way through either Most importantly, the actions that I'm doing, but also even the words that I can say.
0: You'll be out there at least for another season and take it day by day, but you'll be based in Boston, it sounds like.
1: Yes. I just moved out to the Natick area, and I think it's a great great place, uh, close access to Boston, but a little more of a rural setting. Um, I... Close proximity to the Weston ski track at the Leo J Martin Golf Course, um, and they they do a wonderful job there of providing at a minimum a, a two kilometer loop. If this if it's not if the natural snow is not doing a great job, they're pumping in the uh, Charles River water to make snow. And um, I like I like being a sea level athlete as well. I've, I've found uh, that I, that I respond well to it. That that yeah, so. and uh, yeah for personal reasons as well.
0: Okay. So I knew it sounds like you did a lot of reading the past three years, but one of the things I I was already in my brain before you brought up, like I've done a ton of reading, like what's on your night table. What do you read like for non-academic stuff?
1: Uh, Well, right now, yeah, right now I'm, I'm enjoying getting back into fiction. Um, I most recently read Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. It was really, really wonderful. And, uh, with references to Buddhism and everything. And it was really, really neat to see it. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Um, before that, I read the biography of Ulysses S. Grant by Ron Chernow. And that was another amazing story of a, a figure who was closely tied with Lincoln and um, a very interesting time in the nation's history to read about.
0: Uh, a politics, is that in your future?
1: Uh, but I have some friends from the Kennedy School or from the military that are running for U S Congress. Um, I haven't thought about it really. I mean, I've, i thought, what would it be like? And I certainly wouldn't consider running now. And I, I don't know. I, would just would have to, I, I'm, de- I'm definitely not there right now. And I mean, I think it would be a wonderful way to serve, but, uh, you have to be at the right time in your, in, in one's own life. And I'm not there right now. And I don't know if I'll ever will be.
0: Um, well, thanks for your time. I got to say, I'm psyched. We chatted. Yeah, I'm psyched. And, um, so thanks for your service and, uh, good luck, uh, next year.
1: Thanks for your interest. I really appreciate it. Take care, Jason. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation.